This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Book Riot Podcast, it's weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, June 25th, 2039. <laughs> I would believe you. <laughs> Are we doing a show next week? I don't remember. It's fourth. The fourth is on a... Sun, Saturday. Saturday. I think we do record I think a show, we are. and there'll be one yes. for Monday. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you'll know, listeners, when it either does or it doesn't show up in your feed on that Monday. Um, it was a slow news week, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and then it wasn't. <laughs> so kind of a back and forth uh, and news kind week of going on. All here. over the map, really. Yeah, right. Um, I guess on the, the COVID side, We've got one story. Actually, do we have any story? We don't actually have any COVID-related stories today. I had one I just was going to throw in there because like, I don't want to add another one except this one was both kind of funny and a PSA. Uh, someone, I think Jamie linked it in our Today in Books newsletter last night about people. Now that some libraries are reopening for grab-and-go service, they're getting mm. books, they're worried about COVID being all up in their Grisham novels or whatever they've got going on, and they're putting them in the microwave. Don't microwave your books, Which people. is not something you should do. <laughs> no. Um, microwave food. Really, that's it. I'm not sure there's anything else you should microwave, uh, and not all foods for certain, but do not put your micro. They will catch on fire. That's what yeah, will happen. Yeah, yes. I... I am relatively certain that the latest, like best practices around COVID indicate you don't super need to worry about books and cardboard or your mail or any of those things anyway. Mm -hmm. But if you are worried about them, nonetheless, you can either not use your library because please don't microwave library books or get your library books and let them sit for 48 hours in some quarantine book container that you Mm -hmm. have created for such a purpose. Yeah. Don't put them in the oven either don't put no. them in the dryer don't spray them with lysol yeah i even leaving them out in the sun which again i'm not a virologist i don't think it helps anyway damages the paper so on and so forth i think probably if you want to get books from the bookstore but you're still a little nervous about the books having gunk on them or whatever just let them sit yep. 72 hour quarantine shelf you know make yourself a little library quarantine <laughs> shelf see how it goes there. So I thought that that was one thing that kind of came up. Um, PSA, but also it wouldn't have occurred to me to nuke uh, my uh, business books or whatever no. from the library these days. I, I mean, it makes a certain degree of sense. Have you heard these stories about microwaves first came out, people were trying stuff out, like drying off their pets? It didn't go well. <laughs> oh, God, no. Very, very much did not go well. It's a bad plan. No, it's it's a bad plan. Um So anyway, okay, uh, NBCC update. Let's do that before the first break. Um, The board is down to nine members, or was. It could be fewer now. (laughs) This reminds me of the Nobel thing, right? Like the the case of the magic vanishing number of board members. Um, We don't know if about their bylaws to know if there's a critical mass they need to keep. Presumably, they're not as archaic has the Nobel's bylaws, which you actually yeah. can't replace anyone and but it just becomes dead weight, but I'm not sure. You can't even get a simple majority quorum with nine out of 24 people. No, so I don't that's know, true. I don't that's think true. they can pass anything. That's, um, 
that's wild stuff. Uh, there's an action plan, um, but apparently the person who is still there, who is the problem, <laughs> is still there. So yep. that's not ideal as these things go. <laughs> Um, there's a, we'll put the link in the show notes as, as we always do to the stories you talk about bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, they are going to continue with some of the programs, um, emerging critics program, um, virtual town halls, uh, will not repopulate the board until we're confident we have diverse candidates who reflect our commitment to literature and social justice. Good luck. Uh, we'll, re- we'll reach out to, um, BIPOC people to encourage them to run for board positions have fun with that, with this one um, toxic dude in there. <sighs> I don't know. I don't, you know, it seems like you need to you need a structure to get rid of a bad apple, and it doesn't seem like they have that until you have that structure. The bad apple fully rots or falls off the tree or whatever happens to apples you no longer want, and yet you can't throw away. They're they're going nowhere. I mean, this is mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be not even treading water, but drowning. I guess slightly more slowly. Yeah. The the thing we can't know is. No. Are the other remaining board members working to figure out some way to eradicate this person Mm -hmm. who was the bad apple? And it's worth noting that based on what we heard last week in those pieces, he wasn't the only bad apple. He was just like the clearly the The one who signed uh, his name to a thing that got shared. The most outspoken bad apple. On a related note, Helen Rosner, the food critic or one of the food critics for The New Yorker, wrote an amazing piece piece a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. about how apples go bad. Um, That points out that one of the things that happens when an apple goes bad is that it releases um, gases that make the other apples around it also go bad. Um, a useful yeah. analogy you know what? from what the natural world. Is the Osmonds lied to me. That one bad apple <laughs> don't spoil the whole bunch, girl. Donny Osmond lied to yeah, me. Yeah, it actually can. You've been lied to by Donny Osmond. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think... The most generous reading is that they, these nine people really do see the error of their ways and they intend to do all of this work and they believe that it will make it better. There are many less generous readings. Shocking. No one listening to this podcast. I am on the less generous end of that spectrum um, with, with uh, this particular case. And I think that um, unless or until they're able to get rid of that guy and really demonstrate that this is a space that folks of color, queer folks, black people should feel safe coming into and should feel mm. like their work will not just be received but actively supported. It's a, a big uphill battle now for the NBCC to gain that trust and credibility. Um, and what you're asking for when you're asking people to join a board like this is for a bunch of free labor. So what they're saying, like, come volunteer and do your free labor on our board. It's a yeah. it's a rough look. Um, I hope that they will make difficult. these changes. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's do our first sponsor and we'll come back to new news. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tommen series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsy Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend. 
So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you and its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Gardova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. So they're, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Uh, I think this is the biggest story of the week. Um, Mm -hmm. John Sargent, the CEO of Macmillan, who we've had more occasion to put his name in our mouths over the last year than we might have expected. Going going back now 75 years to October, um, when Macmillan first announced, thought about, and then in January, I believe, made the change for the first time. Unbelievably, that's only six months ago, to change the ebook in digital licensing terms. It would offer to U.S. libraries, especially, um, changing to a different kind of a system. I don't want to get into the, the details here now, but basically embargoing, windowing, however you want to say it, where not all uh, and eventually not any new releases from Macmillan imprints would be available on day and date with their sales date. Um, like, was it six weeks, 12? I don't remember. It was, it was some weed. I, I lose I, the details now. Mm, I think it was 12, but I'm, I don't remember. Anyway, six or 12 weeks. People didn't like that. Um, consistent, organized blowback from libraries, librarians, and eventually library patrons. Um, it was walked back in the early days of covid um, as you know, libraries cut down, shut down, and ebooks were uh, really a lifeline. I mean, even my own household, li- ebook and digital lending from the library has been a lifeline. Uh, and Macmillan either saw the error of their ways anew, used it as cover to make a change they wanted to make anyway, or really didn't want to be the publisher who was withholding books from library patrons and the only way they could get them during this. Then also we had Flatiron, which is a sub-imprint of Macmillan, and American Dirt, and all that go on. And now, um, in the in the wake of this newest iteration of the movement, uh, G, uh, John Sargent says he'll step back from day-to-day responsibilities. Um, and following an industry-wide day of action protests against racism organized by five Macmillan employees, and instead, or however this is going to work, um, there's going to be... U.S. publishing, the U.S. publishing will be handled, and I'm going to 
hear my air quotes because we're going to come talk. I think word by word, we want to talk about a little bit of this. Will now mm-hmm. be handled by a 13 person committee, which Sergeant Statement says will be a different and more inclusive management team representing a wider range of experiences. In his letter, Sergeant added that the company is making sure we have diverse perspectives in the decision making process. Also, a series of promotions were mm-hmm. announced. Um, looking at the names a little while ago, I don't know any of these people by name. I looked at some profiles. It does look like it's a, I mean, you were, it's a, it's intentionally built to be a more, more diverse body than one white guy. I guess it's easy to do that with anything. Um, fascinating decision, very interesting decision could go a couple of different ways. Um, are these people, is Sergeant giving up his portion of salary to pay to these people? Are they going to get paid more money? What kind of decision-making power do they really have? Like, does he still have to, to, to stamp decisions that's being made by this committee? There's, you know, there's a lot of questions I think I would think about as someone who's involved in this on a micro level, right? Like, what, yeah, you know, how would this yeah. work? I am the most hung up on the word committee. Like, yeah. to, I, I think committee connotes something different than a team and maybe I'm just parsing to a board or something like that or a board. But like if you've got a bunch of employees working on something that, you know, like very often the Mm -hmm. nomenclature is this is our team that does X, Y, Z. You know, it says Sargent is in charge of the publishers. He remains in charge of the publishers global business, but U S publishing is going to be handled by this 13 person committee. And there were all of those promotions announced. So Mm -hmm. the, like I'm inferring there that those folks are getting paid more, to do this right. work, how much decision-making power they have. I hope that they also have more decision-making power now that they are handling the U.S. publishing. Um, but I don't know if this is just like sort of lazy and like we'll, we'll just say handled and we'll say committee or if the or uh-huh. if the word handled is, you know, supposed to be meaningful versus managing. Like handling, managing, leading, these are all, you know, different words that could mean different things. It could also just mean that someone wrote the press release and was like, this is what we're going to say today. Um, I think this is it's really interesting. The company said that the change had been in the works for a long time and if that's true, I think that's also great and really interesting. And they definitely had Macmillan had cause when the American Dirt stuff was going on to have to talk about the diversity or the lack thereof in their workforce. And they also made a commitment after a series of meetings with Latinx um, activists mm-hmm. at the time saying that they were going to hire more diversely and look at that moment specifically at Latinx representation. So I think it's totally possible also mm-hmm. that they've been planning how to do this for a while and that they realize like this is the moment that like we should not continue waiting. Let's just like, you know, throw the switches and make this thing happen. We talk so much on this show about how long it takes to get more diversified workforces in publishing because of how slowly things turn over. And if you want fast change, like this is the way to get it. Um, I saw, you know, like some skepticism in responses of like, they're just doing this because they're just doing this now because of Black Lives Matter. Like, okay, maybe they are, but also companies taking action like Mm -hmm. this that diversifies their leadership because of Black Lives Matter is exactly the thing that we want companies to be doing (laughs) in this, in response to the movement. And it doesn't matter, I think, at this point, not it doesn't matter, there are, there have been impact and effects of the fact that it took this long to get here. So I don't want to say it doesn't matter that they waited 
this long. It does matter. But at this moment, it's like, well, good. Now you have done the right thing. Hello and welcome. Well, because they can't go back in time. Like they can only they can <laughs> right. only do it now or in the future. And now is better than the future. So the sooner the better of these things can happen. Mm-hmm. I, I know very little. Um, that's not true. I know some, but little more less than I that I feel comfortable knowing to to speak intelligently about any of this about how these different kinds of publishers are run like what kinds of decisions will be made differently like or, or could you what if you went back maybe we do let's get out to DeLorean Rebecca get up to 88 <laughs> miles per hour blow through um blow through Springdale and let's say this committee existed five years ago does Flatiron acquire American Dirt Hopefully not. Well, I just don't, but like, what's the, is flat, but we know, you see what I'm asking, like flat irons and imprint of whatever, do they decide their own budget? Like this 13 committee that's in charge of quote unquote Macmillan, but that, how does that trickle down into how the imprints get run? Like, does that change? Like, I guess that's where I'm kind of getting confused yeah, about. Are they know, just doing the work? Of, are they doing Sergeant's work as a 13-member board that a, didn't yeah. include looking at imprint acquisitions? If not, then it kind of doesn't matter. Then it's each individual person. I, I don't know. That's interesting to me to wonder about. Right. I think that what I'm hoping for is that this 13-person committee team, whatever, um, sets the tone and is the first step for additional changes. And if the company is going to be paying attention to mm. diverse voices in a in an intentional and meaningful way. I hope that they're asking what that means at every level and every like transaction and interaction within company processes and not just how many people of color do we have on our in our leadership. Like that's an important thing, but so is um how did it become possible that Amy Einhorn could acquire American Dirt and spend a bajillion dollars on it, and no one could see that that was going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming which I think this is committee would have assumed it was a problem, right? I guess I'm assuming that for the time right. being. Right. Like, if we assume that this committee would have flagged American Dirt as yeah. problematic, um, would they have had the power to kibosh mm-hmm. it? Um, and if not, then what do they have the power to do, I think is what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. How much replacement power or is it just another, not just another, or is it a gate towards recommendation to Sergeant? And it would cost him cultural, political capital within the organization, say, set up this committee, ask them to make decisions. And then, you know, even if it's functionally, he has to sign off on mm-hmm. paychecks or whatever. Like, ultimately, that's how these things work. Who right. controls the money? It would cost him considerable anguish, I would guess, to veto a meaningful perso- uh, percentage, because that, that stuff is getting out now. I mean, that's worth saying out loud, too, about the day and age we live in. People are less inclined to keep a company secret or internal company processes that are bad or undesirable even to the person making them, even if the wider public doesn't think they're bad. So I would guess if this 13-person committee decided, there's some, let's say there's some book coming out. I mean, there's a pipeline, right? Are they going to go review the seven-figure deals, the six-figure deals? And they said, you know what? We're going to eat the advance on this one, and it's never going to see, or we'll revert the rights, we'll give you back whatever. Can they do that? And is Sargent going to just be like, yeah, fine. And how long will that last or whatever? mm -hmm. Or can they go back and find out that, say, like, perhaps the writers of color who have been given advances for books that, that are in the works are meaningfully underpaid relative to the white Mm -hmm. writers on the list are they going to go back and increase those advances like this is i think this is one of those questions that happens in every industry or every company as workforces become more diverse is you're trying to make the company more diverse because Mm. representation 
is a that's an end in itself. But representation within the company is also a means to representation and inclusivity in whatever that company produces. And so we're talking about wanting to see Macmillan and PRH and HarperCollins and Simon Schuster and all these publishers be more diverse in who works for them and the power that those folks have. And we are hoping that that will result then in more diverse products as well, in this case, more diverse books, um, and fewer books that do the kind of damage that American Dirt does. And whether that's a straight line or not remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to see happen. Um, You know, you could wonder about if a 13-person committee was such a good idea by itself, regardless of who's on that committee, right? Like maybe it's from design and acquisitions. Like why wasn't that thing done before? Like there's kind of two things happening right here. There's the creation of the committee, Sargent stepping down, and then better representation of that committee that, you know, better represents what Macmillan wants to, who they want to include in leadership. Is it better to have the old kind of a structure, but the people, you know, more executives of color? Like, I don't know. There seems we there's, there's two things happening. This isn't just one thing happening. This is two things happening. I guess what I'm saying at the same yeah. time It's the creation of this kind of 13 person committee. 13 person committees is not fun. I've been on 13 person committees. That is difficult. <laughs> even <laughs> yeah, if even lot. if people are well intentioned or whatever, right? Um, so will it make it harder to get stuff done because they need seven out of you know seven of them to vote on? I I, I just don't know. Um, from a business operations point of view, just from decision making. That's a part of this that I find fascinating. And does that, the creation of this committee, further the goals or hinder the goals, right? Like the best way to get things done generally is to have fewer people as decision makers rather than more. But if you want to make better decisions on the whole, you know, it's, I guess you're, you're, you're choosing um, which column you're more interested in drawing from. And they, it sounds like they're trying to draw from both structures um that might make sense but we'll see we'll see will we hear about what decision is made will we hear about a change in policy like what would be the kind of announcement or policy change or whatever we might see coming out of um is american dirt get a, get a paperback release interesting question mm-hmm. right um you know uh, i'm not i can't even think of anything else but that would be the immediate one like we've we've seen this happen before was it with um Sherman Alexie's book, right? Where right. they delayed the paperback. Uh, you don't have to say you love me. And then I I don't know if it did it ever come out. I don't have, actually have it in front of me. I think it did, but it was much, much later is my memory of it. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah. We could look. But the, it, if it did come out in paperback, it did not come out to like a giant campaign yeah. and a lot of fanfare. This committee presumably could stop printing American Dirt, could withdraw the Kindle and the audiobook. Right now, if they wanted mm-hmm. to, I guess yeah. they'd probably have to make some restitution to Cummings and her agent contractually. But that's the kind of thing businesses do if they want to do it. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't, but I'm saying that's the kind of decision presumably this kind of board could make um, going forward. But mm-hmm. we'll see. Sherman Alexie's memoir did come out in paperback. Okay. I have confirmed. All right. Where do I want to go? Let's go to um, hmm, maybe some like state of the book world inside yeah. the movement stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is interesting. Uh, yeah. So 
in the last couple of weeks, a handful, I think it's like five to 10 um, prominent titles about anti-racism have, you know, hit the bestseller list because everyone wants to buy these books. And one of the things that has happened in in that is that the books have been like completely sold out. They need reprints. There are backorder situations with distributors. And in the rush to buy anti-racist books and to do it through Black-owned bookstores as another act of support, um, book buyers have created like it's a, a good problem to have supposedly to have way more orders than you can fill, except that apparently a lot of well-meaning white people who have ordered anti-racist titles from Black-owned bookstores are now, like, very upset that they have to wait a little while to get their books about anti-racism. So there's a piece in the New York Times this week about um, Semicolon Bookstore, which is in Chicago, and Mm. another bookstore called um, Frugal Books. I'm looking for where that's located, um, are among just a couple of the Black-owned bookstores that have been just overrun, flooded with orders for these anti-racist titles that nobody can get because Mm -hmm. they're all sold out. Um, They're also just flooded with orders, period. And we're also in the middle of a global pandemic. So it's taking books, like even books that are in stock at distributors are taking much longer to go from the distributor to the customer or from the distributor to the bookstore and then to the customer because all the shipping companies are really overloaded. And if you've ordered anything on the internet in the last three months, you know that this is a problem that's happening. Um, So there's that now the owners of the um, some of the black owned bookstores are speaking out and they're asking for like grace and patience and basically like sit down and chill your anti-racist book will get to you but putting a lot of pressure on a black owned bookstore because a book that you ordered is not in your hands yet when they can't control any of the elements of the supply chain uh, it's, it's almost it's, it's almost beyond parody for white <laughs> people to, to go to a black bookstore intentionally to buy an anti-racist book in the middle of a pandemic and then complain about the book, not the anti-racist book, not getting to them fast enough. It, 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 there's so many <laughs> levels of obtuseness um, bleeding into hostility uh, and bleeding into passive racism that it's. It would be funny if it weren't so sad and frustrating and, and damaging because any bookstore is has a, has a problem getting what, how to be anti-racist. Like what's the most popular, mm-hmm. probably how to be anti-racist right now is the one. Cause it's like yeah. the go- the name is what people are Googling. <laughs> like literally right. what, people, what white people are Googling um, uh, from their BMW X fives uh, in driveways and suburbs all over the country. Apparently, you know, you can't, it's just, you cannot compare the fulfillment acumen of your Amazon's, with any independent bookstore. You just can't. They cannot do the same thing. You, you have to understand that's part of it. So if, you, if you're complaining, you're worried, you're upset, you're frustrated, first of all, it's, it's a book, and you're going to be fine. You're, you're going to be fine. Second of all, this is not a black bookstore problem. It's kind of an indie bookstore problem. Like Amazon owns its own supply well, chain. You cannot compare the two things. You just to say like, well, Amazon can give me two days. Yeah, that's right. you're right. You know why? Because they're de facto, you know, their own shadow uh, 
uh, post office built into it, and they have their own warehouse. They have their own. They get preferences because of leverage. And a lot of the things people don't like about Amazon, and they do like about Amazon, go hand in hand. Their leverage mm-hmm. allows them to be fast, but their leverage also leans on bookstores, and they erode margins. They do a bunch of the other things that people maybe not necessarily like. But that the price we pay for all the things we don't like about Amazon is it gets there tomorrow or in two days. Independent bookstores don't do that. Even Barnes and Noble can't do this stuff. Uh, Amazon can do, and they're the second and, biggest one. So you just got to understand what what the game it is you're playing before you start complaining and, about you can't get the book you ordered yesterday. And nobody can do it if the books That's are right. completely sold out. Yeah. Like How to Be an Anti-Racist is in its 18th reprint. Unbelievable. Which is ju- unbelievable. And according to its publisher, One World, which is a, an imprint at uh, PRH run by Chris Jackson, there are more than a million hardcover copies of it in print. Like, who is the most surprised about how their book sales went during the pandemic is definitely Ibram Kendi. Yeah. And just a million hardcover copies. It's in its 18th reprint. Like the publishers are making these books as fast as they can because they do want to take your dollars for them. And bookstores are happy to receive the support. But like Mm -hmm. you're not actually being helpful and supportive if you order a book and then email every day to ask when it is going to be there. And hopefully people listening to this podcast already know better than that. But just in case, like this illustrates the need for education about anti-racism and also illustrates the point that like yeah. reading about anti-racism is not the um mm-hmm. not the first not necessarily even the first action you should take it's not it's certainly not the last action it will not solve the problem on its own there is internal work and recognition and awareness to be done i was i had this like big eye rolly response to this of like of course mm-hmm. this is a problem yeah. Because of course it is. <laughs> just just as comparison, though, I mean, it's interesting because I'm looking at I'm Amazon right now. So I'm just looking up three that I know have been selling very well. Mm. How to be anti-racist, white fragility, and stand from the beginning, right? Those are three that have been, you know, in in the ether. I'm just picking those because they're, fr- they're top of mind, right? So how to be anti-racist from Amazon for me right now, I could order that today in hardcover. In, or is it hardcover? Yeah, only in hardcover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could get that Saturday. So two days. Tough to compete with any day of the week. If I go to White Fragility, I've got to wait till July 1st for White Fragility. And from Stand from the Beginning, I've got to wait till June 30th. So kind of a range from normal to very mm-hmm. abnormal, even for Amazon. And these are just three books. I'm sure this would look differently if um, me and me, you know, there, there's, there's a whole bunch we can talk about. Um, but like even Amazon is under strain. If Amazon's under strain, it's like order of mag- mag- magnitude more difficult for independent bookstores to deal with that. And um just know that going in, you know, I just mean, know that going yeah, in. Like, frankly, if you spent $26 or whatever the list price of how to be an anti-racist is, and you ordered it from a black bookstore, and some of that money goes into the pockets of a black author, and that yeah. book never appears on your doorstep. Yeah, like, you're doing okay. That's also fine. It's you're also fine. fine. You're going to get the book. <laughs> and how? And if you, here's another challenge. If, you're, if you thought about being, if you were even, even if you didn't say it, if you were frustrated about how long it's going to take, you just committed to reading the book. You did. You did. You, you, that, that's the deal we just made. Yep. All of you who felt weird, you, you're going to read that book you bought with good intentions. And then maybe you'll even do something. I, I'm not even asking for that. This is just a podcast. I can do what I can do by guilting you into reading the book. <laughs> you so well-intentionally complained about not getting fast enough. Because Lord knows you were going to finish it two days earlier um, when you got the book on time. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out, because I don't think that we made this point on the show yet, that on this list of anti-racist titles, still the one at the top is White Fragility, which is by a white author. Yeah. And Have we talked folks, about this? Yeah, we I haven't. 
think really we have, have but yeah. um, our colleague Kelly Jensen has talked about it online. I've said many, many other folks have pointed this out. So we're certainly like, this is not our original piece of criticism mm-hmm. here. But I think that is worth being aware of as if you are a white person listening to this show and you're thinking about which book to by to understand racism and mm-hmm. what the experience of white supremacy is like and what whiteness inside white supremacy does to black people and people of color in this nation that it, the urge to buy the one called white fragility by a white lady if that's the the first inclination might be also worth investigating yeah um there's a bunch we i mean we're not the only ones but there's a bunch of lists out there um look at mm-hmm. them and see which one makes the most sense for you uh, where do you want... Let, let's do silliness. We, Others, like, maybe, I mean, well, hmm. <laughs> It's all... Everything is, like, a silly in an eye-rolling, groany kind of way. Let's do... Today in Water is Wet. George R. R. <laughs> Martin reports steady progress in the next Game of Thrones book. Um, Carry on, George. You know, does... If someone calls him, can you just not pick up? The, we don't. I, I don't want this. Uh, do you have to pick up the phone? Just, just nothing. No one. We don't need to hear from you, George. I'm so. I'm, I'm pulling for you. I want you to finish. I wish you nothing but the best. But even I, who have tried to as much sympathy as I can for the position, because as we talked about on the show, an extraordinary yes. position to be in. Blah 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 blah. But I, if someone calls you to say, "What's the deal with the next Wednesday Winter book?" You say nothing. Steady progress? I I, I don't know. He's his own worst enemy about this stuff, and I'm no help, I guess, in this moment. I mean, the fact that this is a piece in the New York Times with two authors on it. That's weird, too, right? I thought that was strange. (laughs) It's called George R.R. Martin is typing. Like, that's just how much interest and pressure exists around this. That, like, yes, we just need regular updates that George R. R. Martin is aware he has a book that's due. Well, I guess, uh, do people care about the update? Like, I think the next update would be the book is done. Like, is anyone else interested in a steady progress update? If it's not, the book is done. Or it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm delivering it tomorrow. Well, like, there's the, the bo- jerks the bro- like us clicking on it and talking about no, it I mean, the I, I mean, the, the boy who cried submitted. You know, I don't know what to say <laughs> about this. Um, I guess <sighs> I guess if 20... Th- I mean, you know, maybe, maybe I should find comfort in that 2020 yields familiarity and things we can count on, yeah, like I mean, very I, slow clocks. Yeah, I think... I, I mean, I kind of understand where... George is coming from here. Yeah. I'm calling him George now because I feel like we're well acquainted. Yeah. That um, there's so much pressure on him and he's like, what, alone in his house during a global pandemic yeah. and he's writing blog posts to reassure people that this book they've been waiting for is coming. So like every now and then, like we should actually clock this. Is it every six months that he posts the blog? Yeah, update? does he have like is a Google every... calendar reminder? <laughs> like does he set right. up to be, Yeah. If he's wily, it's on like a random number. It's like, hey, Google, remind me every 77 days to blog about the progress on the winds of winter. But it looks like he blogged about it. Then he tweeted a link to the blog post. And then the New York Times picked Got up, him on the horn. Yeah, right. Yeah, a piece about that. So Maybe it's like George a proof of life situation. You know, it's <laughs> like we don't want to send out an Amber Alert for George. And his only way to do that really is to say, you know, I am working on the book. Steady progress. Um, you know... <laughs> Of course, George, I mean, again, he's the author, created a, a wonderful fantasy series that, you know, even if another no, another word is never written, a lot of people have gotten a lot of joy out of, so no shots. Um, yeah. But, like, I do feel sympathy for, he clearly was already having a hard time finishing this book, and then 2020 come knocking. I mean, right. it can't be any easier. 
Like I know from my own like side, not projects, yeah, but like interests and in things. Like I'm not more. Pro- I'm way less productive than no. like he's got to say. I guess. I guess maybe it's interesting to say. You know, even in the midst of this, I do feel like I'm making some progress. I would be more interested. He said, "You know what? I got nothing for y'all. I am right. just sitting here trying not to freak the heck out and microwave my books and catch my house on fire. That's the best I can do today." You know, that's a piece of the COVID stuff that I hadn't considered yet, but like how many writers are there who are having to tell their editors or publishers, like uh, that deadline is just not going to happen for me right now. I would say to a frost approximation, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, right? (laughs) It has to be right. Like nothing is normal. No one's productivity is at normal rates. Expecting it to like expecting anyone to stick to a delivery date for a thing you agreed to before March 12th is unreasonable. I know. I know. Yeah. Anyway. So I mean, just, I guess it's more of a, I find something comforting in the strange frustration of these (laughs) reports to which no one really puts any stock in. Right. Does anyone, I don't, I don't need to believe it. I don't need to disbelieve it. It's I mean, just, also, it what does steady progress mean? <laughs> sure. Letter a day. You know, infinite monkeys on infinite typewriters eventually will write Winds of Winter before George R. R. Martin. Okay. Uh, you know, while we're being silly, I mean, okay, this came through this morning and it's not, well, look, it's real dumb. <laughs> It's real it's dumb. Not quite, it's not quite as dumb as initially thought and maybe more crazy making the way this works. So, Peace on the Verge, Arthur Conan Doyle's estate is suing Netflix for giving Sherlock Holmes too many feelings is literally a nonsense. There's a, it's today and could be Onion headlines, right? Yeah, um, I, like, I, yeah, I would believe this if you told me it was from The Onion. So Netflix has a new series coming out called Enola Home, starring ugh, it's not it's not Bobby Ann Mason. That's the short story, right? Millie Bobby. It's Millie Bobby Brown. Millie Bobby Brown, which I always feel like cannot be right because her name <laughs> cannot be Bobby Brown without Millie. Right. I mean, that can't be right. So I'm always I'm always sheepish about getting it wrong. Anyway, um, who I really like, in, you know, best known uh, Stranger as, um, Things, Eleven and Stranger Things. She's really great in that show. I was looking forward to this. It's she's supposed to be, I think, uh, Sherlock Holmes is sister stepsister something like this and then also yeah, teenage fights, sister yeah yeah solves crimes in, in the great pantheon of sherlock holmes public domain spins this seems like a pretty good one i think she would she she would be she seems like she'd be very good at playing like intelligent and strange and offbeat and yet endearing which is kind of like the best sherlock holmes avatars kind of do these days well apparently the arthur conan doyle's estate um, which woke from its long slumber to file a lawsuit against Netflix for giving Sherlock Holmes too many feelings. Now, like, if you're like me, and if you are, congratulations, isn't it grand? Um, but second, <laughs> second, uh, gosh, I couldn't even get it out without starting to laugh. Uh, I was like, wait a minute, Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain. How are they, how are they suing anyone about anything? Well, turns out some of the Sherlock Holmes stories fall out after 1924, and so are under copyright, and apparently the representations of Sherlock Holmes that includes him having feelings in a way that we understand feelings and rather just being sort of a, uh, a mystery-solving robot um, happen in the, post, uh, the post-1924 the post era. So technically, Arthur Conan Doyle's estate has copyright to that representation. Now, what I don't understand is you could say Sherlock Holmes has nine tongues coming out of his eyeballs, and that's cool, right? For just mm-hmm. the name Sherlock Holmes. But if you give him a characteristic that a, a subsequent representation 
that's new is still under copyright you can't do. That, that's what's at stake, which is a little less ridiculous because I, 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 I do know some past cases. I think there was this, um, for a while, Superman. DC only had copyright to certain elements of Superman's identity because the ones before that were owned by the original creator some way. Like, you couldn't say that he could fly for a while um, bec- or something like that. I, I can't quite remember. But there was a bifurcation in what was public domain Superman and what was um, available Superman or what DC owned. And so this is a fascinating and maddening insight into the world of copyright and intellectual property that feels you're like you're living in the Upside Down, to use a, a Stranger <laughs> Things reference, because it seems... It seems so bizarre to be able to say this, and yet I have to admit, at some level, it kind of makes sense. Like, to have feelings doesn't seem something copyrightable. I don't know the law about this. But let's say um, in the subsequent Sherlock Holmes books, he'd lost an arm, right? And part of his character was dealing with that. I could see how a representation that you're not paying royalties to the Conan Doyle estate would kind of matter because you're using our copyrighted one but this seems like beyond the pale of things you should be able to copyright is that character yeah. feeling i mean it's like one of the notes in this piece from the verge is that like in addition to you know developing human connection and empathy later yeah. in the later stories sherlock holmes starts liking dogs and in a previous case a judge actually has described that as a potentially protected trait yeah of sherlock holmes so there's the legal end of like just mm-hmm. how weird and specific yes. copyright can be and that the Sherlock Holmes estate may be, you know, technically w- well within its rights to, right. to protect this versus the like, okay, you can, but should you? And like, is this the battle to fight? And that's complicated by the fact that if you don't defend copyright in one instance, your ability to defend your copyright later on can be weakened. So some of it is just defend your copyright now in case you really need to defend it later. The thing that I want is for somebody from the Holmes estate to just be like, look. We've had a good run. We've had a good run here. That would be ideal. (laughs) That would be ideal. We've had a good run. Take Sherlock. Do as you will. Go with God. Let Mm -hmm. him have all the feelings and respect all the women and like all the dogs. (laughs) Like That would be ideal. Yeah. I think the next best thing would be somebody from the estate being like, okay, we got to do this because we have to do it to defend copyright. But FYI, we're actually fine with the concept of Sherlock having empathy and liking women. This is just procedural. Even if they have to say it like after the fact, I kind of want to know, like, do they actually care about this? And this is a hill they're willing to die on? Or is this like a procedural defense of copyright just because you have to defend your copyright? Like that matters to me. My my guess would be that we're coming to the end of the rope on the grave. We're coming to the last train. We're coming to the last car on the gravy train of the mm. Arthur Conan Doyle estate, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get while the getting's good because even this um, human Sherlock Holmes is going to be in the public domain pretty soon. You know, a hundred years. I, mean, like, I don't remember what the law is in, in England is different. Everything else. The, after that, the car, Arthur Conan Doyle estate has what exactly? Like everything's in the public domain. They've had a hundred years. This, I, I think, they're trying to get the last um, the bite of the apple. Uh, before I don't know before before it's completely bad mm-hmm. you know because where else are they going to get the money to run the Arthur Conan Doyle estate is interested in making what? money for the Arthur Conan Doyle estate Netflix does a thing Netflix has a money <laughs> Netflix might cut him a check for two million bucks just to shut the hell up and go wear That's your fox true. hunters hat and smoke a pipe yeah and that's I mean that's a great point that like often cases like this are are not about actually getting yeah. to court and getting a ruling they're about getting a settlement right right yeah. so I just thought it was wild I 
I mean, on, to some degree, I understand the legal part of it. I find kind of interesting to think about is like that d- different stories come into copyright uh, out of copyright at different times, and basically, as as you proceed, it unlocks different characteristics associated with that character that other people can use. Um, I think the the modern IP and copyright system is is wildly too restrictive for other people. I'm not one of those like information wants to be free as soon as you say something everyone can take your thing because I do think creators need a right to capitalize and support themselves with creations other people want to pay them for. But Arthur Conan Doyle's been dead for a while. We're looking at 100 years. Maybe maybe we could shorten up the timeline to get so that sure uh, sure so can we just let Bobby Brown um do some rapping and play uh, oh, uh Sherlock Holmes' little sister? I want to see Bobby Brown as Sherlock's home sister. That's what I want to see um <laughs> in the future here. Little little 90s R&B with uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, <laughs> at 221B Baker Street. I don't even know what to say right now. You didn't know this, but the B is for beats in 221B Baker Street. A uh, little mm-hmm. known fact. <laughs> the B is for beats. <laughs> Show, title. Show title. Show title. This podcast is hosted by white people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go Amazon Best Books of the Year. I think the first salvo in the mid-year Best Books um, listing that I've seen, yeah, ours is so. coming out before too long. Looks like a good list to me. Some of my favorites yeah. on here. Mm-hmm. I recommended um, uh, Deacon King Gong before. Uh, what else? Did you, what, what else do you want to shout out here? I guess. What do I want to shout out? I really liked Writers and Lovers by Oh, our beloved Lily King. Lily King, that's yeah. a good one. Um, what else have I read? Oh, I'm reading Rebel Chef by Dominique Crenn. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful to see lady chefs getting book deals uh saigon by um fuck tron is really excellent yes of course, that is yeah. really good when i it's was doing really reading lives i was thinking about doing some more of those i wanted to i wanted that was one i had my, but i just didn't get around to it anyway so that's yeah a good one. and there are a couple more that are on my list um hidden valley roll hidden valley road by robert colker i heard is mm. really excellent and then the city we became by nk jemison yeah. which i have not read yet but that's yeah. on here um good interesting i think this is an interesting list and they're not all you know like big flashy um no. titles that you've seen on like reese's book club which i think is also great are they not are not any of the, what's the what's the ones uh, notably no american dirt um, yeah, just, notably just, just no throwing that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something else I was going to... Oh, oh there's lost no, track of it. Um, there's no Vanishing Half. No Britt Bennett. Hmm. Oh, really? Interesting. I thought there was. Uh, I missed it. See. Must have missed it. It's not under yeah. fiction? Literature and fiction? Are you looking there? Oh, I was just looking at the top. Yeah, like that's the just the top 20. 20, and then they have yeah. it broken down by category, and let me see if it's there. Uh, they included... Well done, Amazon. Such a fun age. December yes. 31st, 2019. <laughs> you know what? It counts. Oh, no. American Dirt is on there for Best no. Literature and Fiction. And Vanishing Half is, so that's Vanishing good. But come is, on, come Amazon. On. They buried it on the last slide page. Oh, <laughs> Brutal. Um, Why? please. Oh, well, anyway... Um, there you go. Boy, I really took the steam out of it. Can we go back to Bobby <laughs> Brown in uh, Solving Crimes? That was better. <laughs> I mean, she can just call it the B is for Beats. B is for Beats. As always, you can find <laughs> the links to all the shows we, stories we talked about. We're just giving about. up. 
Bookriot.com slash listen. Choose an email <laughs> podcast at bookriot.com. Which 90s hip-hop or smooth R&B artist would you like to see play <laughs> Sherlock Holmes's sibling? Or Sherlock Holmes. Watson could play any of them. Moriarty? <laughs> Word. Snoop would make a good Moriarty. Snoop would be oh a fun Moriarty. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, well, that's we'll what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, Snoop kind of is. He's producing uh, the IQ novels, which has versions of the characters. Maybe Snoop will cast himself as the oh, big bad. Yeah. Snoop's definitely going to make a cameo. So that's 420 Baker Street. Um, that's what that would be. We have to stop this. Stop. I don't. Is there an ejections button on this thing? <laughs> <laughs>